you have your Bible this morning, go ahead and turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, finishing up one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible. It's a chapter that's all about the resurrection of Jesus. We're about halfway in. It's the longest, most sustained treatment of the resurrection of Jesus anywhere in the scriptures. And, um, and, and it's our pleasure to spend two weeks on it, last week and this week, sort of unpacking it, trying to get a taste of it. So if you weren't here, for, uh, if you weren't here last week, the, the audio from last week should be up on the website. I think it will be helpful to you to understand. If you want to connect with what we're going to say today, last week would be really, really useful. What we said last week um, was that Jesus and Christianity in general are only worth your time if Jesus can save you from death. Let me say that again in case it just blew right past you. Jesus isn't worth your time. Don't worry about even thinking about him unless Jesus can save you from death. That's the essence of Christianity. It's, it's a solution to the problem of the fact that you are going to die. What we said last week is that he can save you from death because he's handled the underlying cause of death. And the Christian story, death is an imposter. It isn't natural. It's an intruder into the world. And that what lets that intruder into the world is the fact that we've chosen not to trust the God who made us. When we choose sin, death is the result for all of us. And Jesus can deliver us from death because Jesus has wiped clean the record of our sin. Death is a kind of penalty that needs to be lifted. And the only way to lift it is to get rid of, to fully satisfy the thing that was done to require death. And that's what Jesus did by his death. And his resurrection proves it. So last, last week was encouraging to us, I think, because, because last week addressed our great fear. This thing that's hanging over us, that we're powerless to resist that's going to come whether we like it or not, and that threatens to steal away everything meaningful that we might do. Jesus matters because he can remove from you the thing that threatens to take away everything that you love. But that's only half the picture. That side of it, that what Jesus removes from us is just half the story. What we still haven't done, we still haven't said is much about what Jesus actually gives us We've talked about what he takes away, the threat of death. But we, we still have to talk about what he actually gives to us in its place. So, so, for example, if you're preparing for a big trip, it would give you a certain kind of comfort to be told and assured that you're not going to you know, get in a traffic accident on the way. And that's good news, right? If, if you could know that for sure, it would relieve some anxiety. But that's only part of the story. I mean, you're still going to want to know where are we going? Like, is the trip to the dentist's office, you know, or is, it, or is it to the beach? It matters. Where are you headed? Why should I care that I'm not going to get trapped along the way? Because the beauty of him taking our death away is so much more than just that we don't have to be afraid. It's that we get everything that Jesus has earned for us by his death and resurrection. This is the side of it we want to we unpack today. What we want to understand is what will life beyond death be like? What has Jesus actually given to us? And I think we've got, we got to be really careful here because the picture isn't very clear. We're, it, it's not necessarily because of the Bible and its teaching, but because of us and the way we're predis- what we're predisposed to believe and understand. I don't know about you, but the idea of immortality is very, very abstract to me. And about the only sorts of immortality that come into our experience 
in sort of our popular culture are not good pictures of it, right? I mean, the, the immortality that we know is the immortality of vampires or like Wolverine. And these guys are not happy, right? They hate being immortal. They don't want immortality because nothing else is immortal. They're immortal, but they're in this mortal world, so all the things that they love are constantly dying, and they just are stuck here. If that's what you think of when you think about immortality, just sort of an endless lack of satisfaction, then, then the, the promises that Paul unpacks in this chapter are not going to sound very beautiful to you. Another thing working against us is our own Christian upbringings. For those of us who were raised in the church, I mean, a lot of times Christians, I've certainly been guilty of this, when we talk about heaven, it sounds a lot like a sort of disembodied soul sort of flying around. It's almost like, it's almost paradoxical. It seems disembodied, and yet when it's embodied, sometimes it's sort of a, a chubby little angel playing a harp, you know? Like sort of floating around with lots of soft lighting and, and clouds and lots of music. and You know, there's some imagery like that, but that's not mostly what the Bible's imagery is for, the, for, for sort of what's coming for us after death. It looks more like the things that we enjoy about this life just put on steroids. It's about feasting. It's about a lack of any sort of fear, enjoying the things God gives us, but without the sort of fear that we might lose them or envy of that others have more or whatever else holds us back in this world. What we want to do is, is try to get past maybe bad associations we have with immortality and get a clear vision of what, of what Christ actually came to provide us. And Paul helps us here. Uh, he helps us in, in the second half of chapter 15 because it's, it, it is abstract. We're going to have some work to do to try to put some flesh on it. But when we do that, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And it, and, it, and it fills out the picture of why you should believe in Jesus. What we said last week, we're going to say again this week. Unless Jesus is alive, he isn't worth your time. The only reason you should consider Christianity is that there's good reason to believe Jesus is alive. And that since he's alive, he's taken death away and he has bought for you. He has ensured for you a future that you can't even imagine. A future of such glory and such unblemished joy that you would be crazy to set it aside for what this world offers you. What we're going to see is that the picture of what's coming for us actually dramatically changes how we live now. Paul's concluding verse in the, cha- in the, in the chapter we're going to read together is that, therefore, because Jesus is alive, the work you do here in this life is not in vain. It changes things. So, in summary, here's what we want to do. We want to understand what is our life in Christ going to be like beyond the grave? Why is an immortal life a good thing? And we want to say, if this is what's coming for us, how does that change how we live now? How we interact with the world that's ours right here, right now. Let's stand together now in honor of God's word as I read. This is the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to read verse 35 all the way through verse 58. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he's chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all the flesh, not all flesh is the same, but there's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. The glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. 
so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, and it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that's first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. For the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. And as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. I want to say, take three steps through this passage this morning, through the passage and its details, and then unpacking it, really sort of savoring and sort of seeping in it. Three steps. They're all really closely connected. They follow one on the other. Step number one is this. Because Christ is risen, here's the payoff. Because Christ is risen, our decaying bodies will become imperishable bodies. Now, this is going to be very abstract. I want to walk you through how Paul makes this point. And then the next two steps are about bringing it down to earth, helping us get a taste of it. All right? But first, let's just understand Paul's text on his own terms. He says we're going to have these decaying bodies that we have now are going to become, be changed into, imperishable bodies. So his driving concern in this part of the chapter is to explain what kind of existence we're going to have after death. And the main point is that the existence will inc- our existence is going to include a transformed body. It seems like he had to make that case because that's what the people he was writing to didn't believe was possible. We already noticed last week in verse 12 that he's writing about the resurrection here because they were denying that, it was, that the resurrection was going to happen. I think now in in verse 35, we see what they thought in place of the resurrection. They thought that it wouldn't be possible for a body to live forever. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body are they going to have? Like body, we know what a body is. We know that this body doesn't belong. And so what Paul's got to do is show them that, that they're not seeing the whole picture. They're not seeing what's possible with God. They were probably okay, in other words, with the possibility of a soul living on after death. 
that, that sort of the body is just a casing for the real you and that it should get stripped away and the real you can, can live on. That certainly was an idea among Greek philosophers at the time, the, the kind of people that the intelligentsia in, in, in Corinth would have read. So maybe that's where they got their ideas. If that's where they got their ideas, chances are they didn't want to have a body forever. Those philosophers thought the body was a bad thing, that it was holding you back, that the, the body was what kept you from the sort of pure existence that you were made for. It was always hold, like distracting you by other sorts of temporary pleasures and keeping you from really connecting with the real you. They wouldn't have wanted an eternal body. But for Paul, if you don't have a body that lasts forever, you don't have anything that really matters. Christianity itself falls apart. The real question, I think, is how could this body that we have get fit, get outfitted for an eternal world beyond death? That's what he wants to explain to them. And the way that he does it is by giving them a bunch of analogies. And really the point of these analogies is pretty straightforward. He just wants them to see God gives lots of different kinds of bodies. And just because you can't imagine the body you have right now living forever doesn't mean that you can't have a body that lives forever. I mean, just look at a seed. It starts out one way. You put it in the ground. It looks lifeless, dry. There's, no, there's nothing to connect the seed in your hand with the plant that's going to come later. The two look totally different, but they're connected. It's one body transforming into another. That's the first analogy he uses. Think about the seed and what God does to it. Then he launches into several other examples, really just showing that there's lots of kind of bodies in the world. There's bodies of humans and bodies of animals, bodies of fish even. There's heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. And really, the point here with all, these, with all of these examples is God can give you the body that you need. Different environments require different bodies. God knows what you need. God can give you one. Just like a seed that transforms into a plant, God can transform you. Now, here's the question I think it sets up. What sort of body would we need for a life after death, and how could we get one? That's what he explains in verses 42 through the end of the chapter. He's made the simple point that there's lots of bodies out there. God knows what you need. God can give it to you. But what kind of body would we need and how could we get it? The primary thing that, the primary thing that has to mark the body that we need is that it can't be a body that decays. It's got to be imperishable. And he makes that point over and over. What we know now as perishable, he says in verse uh, 42, will be raised imperishable. What we know as dishonorable, what causes us shame is going to be raised honorable and become glorious. What we know is weak. What we know is something that keeps us from doing what we wish we could will be raised as powerful. What we know as natural will become spiritual, he says. And we need to be careful here. The spiritual body thing sounds a lot like what we were talking about earlier, like not having a body, basically. What he's, not say, what he's saying is that it's not just going to be a straight-up spiritual experience. He's still using body language. It's something that you can see and touch. It's material. The difference, what makes it spiritual instead of natural, is what gives it its life. That now it's given life by the Spirit of Christ as opposed to by a human soul. The word that he's using for natural here is a word that means soul. The soul that was breathed into Adam when he was born. Well, that thing is going to be changed. I know we're really abstract here. 
But what he's saying is that that thing that gives life to your body is going to be a new force that nothing can ever extinguish. It comes straight from Christ himself. So how are we going to get this imperishable body? We need one. How do we get it? Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the bridge. That's the connection he's trying to make in, in, this, in this paragraph beginning in verse 45. If we need a spiritual body, somebody's got to give us that. And Adam was our connection to the dust. He's the reason we have these decaying bodies. So now Jesus, what Paul calls the second Adam, is going to give us a body like his. Adam is our connection to everything that dies. Jesus is our connection to what is living forever. And it comes straight from him. The last Adam, he says in verse 45, became a life-giving spirit. Jesus lives to give life that won't die. In verses 50 to following, I think Paul is making the same kind of point that, the, that this is what the resurrection is about. It's about us taking on a body that won't die and that this is what Jesus gives to us. But here he's sort of broken down and almost into a poetic summary. It's like he's reaching for language for things that he can't really ex- describe. For this experience that we're going to have when Christ comes for us to make us like him. It's a mystery, he says. He just sort of throws up his hands. I'm talking about something that's a, a mystery. I can't even really understand it. I can't get my mind around it. But here's what I know. That even though not all of us will die, all of us will be changed. That there will come a time in the twinkling of an eye when the trumpet sounds when all of a sudden we will not be what we were. We will have bodies that are perfectly suited for the endless life that Christ came to give us. In a moment, we will be changed. And it's when we're changed, it's when we're given these sort of bodies that we can't even imagine right now, that is the moment at which death is swallowed up in victory. Then, when we put on the imperishable, our new bodies that are perfectly suited for God's kingdom, then... Death will be swallowed up in victory. Now, I I think that's the point of the whole passage. Jesus' resurrection means he can give us a body like his, one that won't die, one that's imperishable. But the disconnect for me that I'm constantly fighting against is why I should take that as good news. I mean, I get that I don't have to be afraid of death anymore. and, And that I connect with deeply. But the idea of an endless deathless body doesn't naturally resonate with me. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it does with you. But if you're like me, this next section is for you. And here's the second step. Because Christ is risen, I've said, our decaying bodies are going to become imperishable bodies. Here's the next step. Because Christ is risen, and you could say, because we're going to get these imperishable bodies, our joy in God's gift to us will be endless and complete. Here's the first payoff. Because we have imperishable bodies, our joy in God's gifts to us will be endless and complete. One thing that's clear about what Paul's saying here is that we're going to have bodies. They're bodies that won't grow old, they won't break down, and they won't die, but they're still bodies. And that's where we have some work to do to explain why they have to be bodies. Because Because couldn't it just be that God would save us from death as souls? I mean, that sort of misconception that I mentioned earlier could work, right? Would we really miss having a body? Couldn't we have just as much hope and joy as a sort of soul that floats around? Paul seems to be saying, no, it's not possible. The whole thing 
that Jesus came to give you depends on you having a body, one that won't die. Why? And here's where I, here's where I connect with it. I'm gonna, there's not a smoking gun in this verse. There's not a smoking gun sort of reference here in this passage. What I'm going to say now, I think, comes as a necessary implication of this passage. This helps me. I hope it'll help you. Our bodies are the means by which we enjoy the things that God gives us, the good gifts that God gives us in this world. Christians understand the world not to be some sort of dark and evil place only. There's dark and evil in it. It's also full of light and beauty. It's also full of things that give us joy because God gave them to us to give us joy. And the only, way we under, the only way we appreciate and enjoy anything that God has given us in this world comes to us through our bodies. Our bodies are how we smell and then taste delicious food. Right? Our bodies are how we see, how we see beautiful art, how we see beautiful landscapes, how we see this amazing Red tree just down the street here on Fairfax. I don't know which way you came. There's an amazing one just right down here. Go out at the front of the building, hang a right, and you'll see what I'm talking about. It's incredible. Like, no artist could paint it. Right? I know it's cliche, but it's amazing. Our bodies are how we see the beauties of fall. Our bodies are how we see and recognize it's a face that we love. Our bodies are how we hear things, how we hear beautiful music, how we hear the sounds of our children laughing. Our bodies are how we think and create. Our bodies are how we do work that we love. They're how we communicate with and relate to our friends. Everything that you enjoy in this world, you enjoy through your body. And God made you that way on purpose. That's how he wanted it. But your body will die. And the fact that your body is going to die puts a pretty low ceiling on how much joy you get out of the things God has given you. Specifically, the fact that we're going to die means that our joys that we experience in these bodies are always impermanent. They don't last. And they're often incomplete. They don't fully satisfy. Think about it. One of my, one, one, one of my most... One of my greatest joys in life to this point has been fishing with my grandfather. It was one of the things that we shared. He taught me how. We would do it together. We would sit on the side of a lake and wet a line and talk college football together. Some of my best memories. But the fact that his body died has now ended that joy for me forever. I have a memory of it, and that's a kind, there's a kind of joy to that, but it's a faint one. And it's getting fainter. That joy didn't last. There is joy to be had in great meals, but even those fade, right? There's joy in the fall season. I've been talking about it a lot. I just love it for so many reasons, and it's almost over, and it just got here, you know? It's like it's written even, the, the impermanence of our joys is written into the seasons even. There's incredible joy to be had in children. I had this amazing moment yesterday where I, uh, our, uh, we were getting home. It was just after lunch, so it's got, pushing it on our nap time for our kids. And, um, and one of them fell asleep in the car, the younger one. And our older one, he never would let me pick him up while he was still asleep. 
he would always wake him up, and he'd you know, get fitful and independent and want to get down and not want to sleep again. But our little one, Sam, he, you can make the transition with him. Lindsay promised me it was true, and it was true. So I pulled, him, I pulled him out of his car seat, and he was just limp and lifeless. And I'm holding him, walking him back to the house. And I was thinking, thinking through this passage, this, is, this feels really good. But he's going to grow up. It's not going to last. Right, this feeling of this, this weight, this sort of heft. It's not too much, but it's, it's there, and it's just completely limp because he, in his own way, sleeping completely trusts me. And he's, he's at peace. And he lets me care for him like this. Oh, man, it tasted good. It was sweet. But I couldn't help but think as I'm walking him back to the house, in a blink of an eye, this is gone. This joy that I'm knowing right now is a gift from God. It's gone. And all of our joys are like that, aren't they? It's because our bodies will die. Our joys are often incomplete as well, not just impermanent, but incomplete. I get a lot of joy out of my work. I think God made me to do that, to get joy like that. He made you that way too. But I also, my greatest stress and disappointment, dissatisfactions in life come from work, from just not being able to get it where I want it just finishing a week and feeling like, what did I do this week? You know that feeling, right? That's a joy we were made to have. But there's something about this life in this body, knowing that our, our clock is ticking, that makes an incompleted work assignment feel harder than it should. Our joys are disappointing and unsatisfying, and I think the reason is these decaying bodies that we've got. That's one of the main reasons, at least. Now, here's the thing. Christianity doesn't call you to abandon joys of this life. Christianity promises you that this world is full of joy that God put here just for you. That it is full of His grace. That this world is a product of His creative genius. And that He designed it. He specified it on purpose for His children because He loves us. No, what Christianity promises is that Jesus has lifted the ceiling. He has blown the ceiling off of your joy. Because what keeps you from enjoying the world God has made in the way that he meant for you to enjoy it is not a flaw in the things that God made, but a problem in you. That you are going to die. And that you're trying to fix that problem by putting way too much weight on things that were never meant to bear it. And you are killing your joy because of it. But Jesus has promised you a body that won't die. A body in which the things you were made to enjoy will be known by you fully and without any mediation. In which you will drink directly from the fountain of joy because you will be in the presence of God himself. It is, it is essential to this vision that Christianity puts in front of you that you have a body through which to enjoy things. Because these things that I've just run off, these things that come to us only through our bodies, they are accurate and true, if faint, reflections of the kind of joy God will give you for all time if you trust in him. And the body that Jesus has come to give us, an imperishable one, is the way that you're going to get access to that joy. What, What Paul says is not that mortal bodies are stripped away but that they will put on immortality. I love that. It's not that they're going to go away. They're going to put on something else. 
they're going to add another layer, even more embodied, so that the sense is that what you have now is only a faint reflection of the kind of body you're going to have then. It's not less bodied, it's more embodied. And that means more joy in the things that God has given you. We will put on immortality and all the joys that we have known in this life, those joys are going to shed their impermanence and they're going to shed their incompleteness. And through these immortal bodies, we're going to know fullness of joy forever in the world in which God is all in all. Now, this is abstract. I get that. Heaven always is when we talk about it. But one of my favorite guides to imagining the beauties of heaven is C.S. Lewis. And in one of my favorite sections where he helps me on this, uh, he gets at the point I've been trying to make. In the end of the last battle, I think I've mentioned this before, the end of the last battle, which is the last book in his Narnia series of fantasy novels, they have just witnessed the death of Narnia, this world that they love, and the friends are journeying together into a new country, and Aslan, the Christ figure, urges them to go further up and further in, further up and further in, and as they do, they notice that it's more beautiful than everything that, than anything they've ever seen. And yet, at the same time, it looks strangely familiar, this new world that they've reached. It looks strangely familiar. They begin to realize that it's an expansion and a fulfillment of what they loved about the old Narnia and its ways. The unicorn is the one who captures the moment. The unicorn says, I have come home at last. I love that. This place he's never been, but he's at home. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. And the reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. I think that gets it exactly right. The reason you should care about the fact that Jesus came to give you an imperishable body is that in that imperishable body, all the things you loved about this world but loved incompletely and impermanently will now be yours in full and forever. And you don't get that world without a new body. Because Christ is risen, our decaying bodies are going to become imperishable bodies if we trust in him. Because Christ is risen and because we have these imperishable bodies, that means our joys the ones we know only partly now, are going to be full. They're going to be endless and complete. And finally, because Christ is risen and because we are destined for a world in which our joy will be endless and complete, there is nothing, here's the last step, there is nothing in this life that we can't do without. I think that's what Paul's getting at in verse 58. It's a therefore that summarizes his whole talk about the resurrection. Therefore, beloved brothers, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, we know something about what work he has in mind. He's been talking about it all letter. And it's, it's a work that sounds like death. He's talked about setting aside your rights for other people, not insisting that you get treated in the way you think you should. He's talked about not really being about being noticed for your wisdom, but being willing to be foolish in the eyes of the world because you're faithful to Jesus. He's talked about his decision to go without money even, to set money aside 
as the way that he identifies himself and gets the things that he wants because he trusts that it's more important that more people get to hear the gospel. He's talked about the things that he faces, the fact that he dies every day, the fact that he dies sort of metaphorically and could die literally. He's called them to a life of love that aims only at seeing people connect with Jesus, not at what you can get out of this life for your own sake, but at seeing people connect with Jesus. Now, hearing that over and over throughout this letter, you can see how some people think Christianity is a call not to enjoy this world, that the the, the delights of this world are distractions. They're things to be shoved to the side and given up, sacrificed even for the sake of the world to come. And I think there's some truth to that, but it can also be very misleading. What we just talked about is that the joys of this world only very faintly prepare us for the joy we're meant for. We're supposed to claim everything we can enjoy in this world as a way of glorifying God. But Paul's saying you shouldn't have to have any particular joy in this world. And the reason, he says, the therefore that makes the kind of work that sets aside joys that are good, that otherwise would be a great way to spend your life. The reason, that that, the reason it makes that kind of sacrifice acceptable and even reasonable is that the joys you're setting aside, if you're called to that, they were only going to be an approximation of what's going to be yours one way or the other. There's nothing you can't do without if that's where we're destined. I think that's why he, he describes it as a call to be steadfast and immovable. Don't let the things that are shifting in your circumstances rock you in your faith in what's coming and in your commitment to do the work that you've been called to. See, what, he's, what I think what he's getting at, and this is kind of ironic, is that when we, when we don't believe Jesus is alive, if we, if we didn't believe he was alive, then all we've got is to, to live our lives here as long as we are alive to maximize whatever pleasure can be ours. The problem is that actually keeps us from enjoying the things of this world because we tend to put such a huge weight on them they have to sort of save us from death at least from thinking about it that there's no way they can deliver just, it's just expect too much out of, out of the things of this world it's only out of realizing that this world's things do not have to save us from death that Jesus has done that already and that he is going to fill us up it's only then that we can actually enjoy the things in this life with freedom I mentioned a book last week by a guy named Ernest Becker. He's a, he was a psychologist and sort of anthropologist who wrote a lot back in the middle of the 20th century. He wrote this amazing book called The Denial of Death. It's basically a book that help, that's trying to describe what, uh, what does it look like to, to live as a culture that now pretty much in the majority doesn't believe there's life after death, at least in his culture. He's writing for the sort of academic world. What do you do when you don't believe there's life after death? When you think that, that we're just an, a sort of material accident that appeared on the scene and will disappear from it at some point. One of the chapters he mentions one of the most common sort of uh, pursuits to plug that gap, to sort of give meaning to a life that's going to end in death, is romance. We have elevated it to this level that maybe no other culture ever has. It's become this thing that we strive for, that we put all of our hope in, that 
It crushes people who either don't have a relationship that they think would fulfill them or people who have a relationship and realize it can't fulfill them. Either way, it's crushing. Here's the way that Becker puts it. No human partner can offer this assurance, an assurance of security despite the changing circumstances of the world because this partner, whoever they are, is real. Which is to say, they're going to die too. However much we may idealize and idolize him, he inevitably reflects earthly decay and imperfection. And as he is our ideal measure of value, this imperfection falls back on us. In other words, if you're looking to that partner to give you meaning and significance in this life, and that partner is not perfect, then that means you're not perfect. If your partner is your all, Becker writes, then any shortcoming in him becomes a major threat to you. If a woman loses her beauty or shows that she doesn't have the strength and dependability we once thought she did, or loses her intellectual sharpness or falls short of our own peculiar needs in any of a thousand ways, then all the investment we've made in her is undermined. The shadow of imperfection falls over our lives and with it, death. This is the reason, Becker concludes, for so much bitterness, shortness of temper and recrimination in our daily family lives. We get back a reflection from our loved objects that is less than the grandeur and perfection that we need to nourish ourselves. We feel diminished by their shortcomings. What's he getting at? That if life here and now is all there is, then the pleasures of this life have to absorb a crushing weight of expectation. And that ends up robbing this life of any joy it could actually give us. But if Christ will give us imperishable bodies, and if through these bodies we're going to know absolute and complete joy, then the partial and the unsatisfying joys in this life, in romance, marriage, the lack of marriage, the impartial and unsatisfying joys that we experience now are not crushing to us, but seeing for what they are, which are partial and incomplete pointers. Pointers signposts to a world that's coming. And they can be appreciated for what they are and not for what they aren't. It's what Paul gets at in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. That's his marriage and singleness chapter we looked at a couple months back. He's like, live a life that you're called in. If you're married, stick it out. If you're not married, don't worry about getting married. Not because marriage is not valuable thing that can cause joy because marriage isn't going to keep you from death and whatever joy is represented there is coming for you in full one day so you can be content there is nothing if Jesus is alive that you can't do without and that's how you become steadfast and immovable that's how you can always abound in the work of the Lord that may cost you your life and not feel like you're sacrificing a thing because if Jesus is alive if these decaying bodies are going to become imperishable ones, if that means that our joy will be endless and complete, then that means there is nothing in this life that we can't do without. I want to close with a quote from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. It captures everything that I've said. It's beautiful. This is how Paul puts it. So, we do not lose heart. 
Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And here's where he gets to the body section. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, that's our body, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent, in this body, we groan because we don't get what we want. Because we know what it is to struggle. We know sorrow. We know imperfect and incomplete joy. We groan. And that groaning, Paul says, is a longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. He doesn't want to put off the body. He wants to put on something new. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us his spirit as a guarantee. That's our hope, friends. Let's pray it in together. Father, Our bodies now do groan. And in so many ways, we know that we are not experiencing what you made us to experience and that it's our fault. And we know that in our own strength, we cannot enjoy this world or protect ourselves from death. But we trust that Christ, that Christ is a Savior a Savior who can redeem all things, even our own bodies. And so we wait for Him. And we give ourselves to You in that time. And we ask You for the strength, fueled by Your promises, to live lives, not in vain, but for Your kingdom that will never end. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.